You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. For a little bit, uh, we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 8 through 13 this morning. And so if you want to turn in your Bibles uh, there, part of the reason that we chose this series and and, uh, uh, and in fact, if, if you know us well, we, we typically just choose a book in the Bible, start at the beginning, study through to the end of it, and uh, we're not much for big topical series um, or anything like that. We just kind of like the slow study of verse by verse and word by word and just get down to the meaning and the meat of a book and uh, what the author intended and what God wants to speak to us through that. Second Timothy, part of the reason we went there is years ago we did the book of Ephesians and then a few years after that, I think we did uh, the book of First Timothy, and now we're doing Second Timothy. And uh, Ephesians, the, the the church at Ephesus, is uh, who Ephesians was written to. Paul planted that church, and uh, after he planted it, he handed it over to a young leader named Timothy. And uh, so Timothy is now pastoring that church that Paul planted. And so this is Paul's second letter to Timothy, encouraging him to be faithful until the end. I think if there's one big theme in the book, it's just that. Be faithful until the very end. And so, uh, again, this morning we're in verses 8 through 13 of chapter 2. If you would, just stand with me while while we read the word quick. I'll read it for us. Beginning in verse 8. Paul says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So this is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Pray, Father, that you would come and speak to us this morning. Lord, pray that you would take me and all of my imperfections, failures, and, and sinfulness, and God, that you would use me as a tool to, uh, to point to you and, uh, Lord, to help us um, think about and be instructed about what it means to endure until the end. God, I pray that you would come and do a work in our hearts. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. You may be seated. In our study of this letter so far, right, we started at the verse 1 of chapter 1 and cited all through last week as we got through uh, the end of chapter 1 and the end of the beginning of chapter 2 here. But as we've studied it, uh, we've learned a few things. The Apostle Paul has been instructing young Timothy to, uh, number one, uh, to, to cultivate a godly legacy. That was kind of week one when we looked at that, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 1. Cultivate a godly legacy was the, the main theme, the main thrust of that week. Uh, week 2... Week 2, verses 8 through 14 of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul instructed Timothy to not be ashamed of the gospel and to guard the gospel with his very life. Week 3, we looked at verses 15 through 18, and uh, Paul was encouraging young Timothy to be a faithful friend until the very end. 
And that was our kind of our big idea that week. And then last week, as we broke into chapter 2, we looked at verses 1 through 7. And the main thrust of that was this. And Paul is telling Timothy, hey, you need to uh, continue in this work, this hard labor of making disciples who will make other disciples. If you remember, the, uh, the core of last week's passage was uh, pass along what you've gotten from me to other faithful men who will then pass it on to other faithful men, right? Make disciples who make disciples. Continue that great commission that Jesus gave us uh, when he ascended back into heaven after the crucifixion and the resurrection. I want to make a quick observation with all of that recap in front of us. Quick observation is this. I think that everything that the Apostle Paul is saying here is really, really hard. I don't think it's easy. I don't think there's nothing easy about what he's been saying. I don't think there's going to be anything easy about what he's going to continue to say. When you think about the last few weeks that we've looked at, it's not easy to cultivate a godly legacy, right? You think about your legacy in your life and what your life speaks to others. This is not easy work. It requires day in and, and day out commitment, real solid commitment to these really mundane spiritual routines, right? They are kind of mundane. Um, and in the midst of committing yourself to those mundane spiritual routines through, throughout the week, day by day, what are you going to see? You're going to see incremental growth over long periods of time. You're not going to see explosive growth typically when it comes to our spiritual walk. So it's hard. You think about uh, that theme of keeping the gospel central in your life, keeping that at the center of your daily life. That's hard, hard work. It requires an, an unwavering focus, an unwavering focus on the, the bloody cross, the, the empty tomb, the, the hope of heaven. You keep a, a strong focus on that in the face of everything visible that we see in this world. All of the things that we see in this world would seek to distract us from focusing on the message of the gospel. So it's hard, right? It's hard work. It's not easy. Think about when Paul talked to Timothy about being a faithful friend until the very end. Well, that's... If you've, if you've had friends, you know this is, this is not easy, right? Friendships are hard. Being a faithful friend to other people, I think, uh, can be oftentimes painful. Uh, can be surprisingly lonely sometimes, right? And I think that the only image that will sustain you and I in that pursuit of being faithful friends until the very end, I believe is just the picture of Jesus as he hung on that cross all by himself after his friends abandoned him and he's dying in their place and in your place and my place. It's that picture of that kind of a friend, a friend of sinners who would give himself in, in place of sinners as he's abandoned and hanging there alone. He even says on that cross, Father, Father, why, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? That's a picture of loneliness that neither you nor I will ever experience to that level. So it's that picture, I think, that holds us steady in that place of being a faithful friend. You think about making disciples. 
we talked about last week. Making disciples who make other disciples. Uh, th- this is a responsibility, and not only a responsibility, but a privilege. I love the two words put together, because responsibility carries that picture of duty. Privilege carries that picture of joy. And if you think it's only a duty, you will tap out. If you know that it's also a privilege, you'll find joy. This is why Jesus was able to say, or the scriptures say, that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, set his face like flint to walk towards the cross. You and I, we don't typically walk towards suffering, especially suffering on behalf of those who have made themselves our enemies. We go to war with enemies. We don't love them. We certainly don't go down on crosses for them. We don't do it joyfully. Jesus, on the other hand, does that joyfully. And he hung there, alone. When it comes to making disciples, it's a responsibility and a privilege. That oftentimes will be lonely. Um, It is something that each of us get to participate in. And it's something that I think is hardly ever done in the neat and tidy classrooms of church buildings. We have one, and I'm thankful. But discipleship typically is not done in those neat, tidy classrooms, or even in spaces, so to speak, like this, where you have rows of chairs, right? The place where discipleship actually gets done is in the real messy trenches of life-on-life ministry, where you spend time with each other, face-to-face, getting to know one another. This is why the years, I think, of COVID and online church became so destructive and hard for everyone as a church. And yet we walked through those years, and there was a must and a need, um, and yet here we are. Discipleship means messy life-on-life work. And there's nothing easy about that, right? There's nothing easy about any of that. At the end of the day, you could probably summarize everything I said by simply saying this, being a Christian is really hard work. The thing that bothers me about many churches today is that the call to discipleship and the call to become Christian does not entail a message of danger, suffering, and the hard work of carrying a cross. I don't think that, Je- I don't think that following Jesus is about the consumption of an hour and a half experience on a Sunday morning. I think it's so much more than that. It's part of that, Yes. There's so much more than that because it involves picking up an instrument of death, a cross. Some of you have heard me say many times, and I think I landed on it in some commentary somewhere, that rather than showing up at church and getting a cup of coffee, wouldn't it be crazy if we showed up to church and we were handing out crosses? Not the kind you wear around your neck, but the kind that you actually carry down the street. How different that would be in our culture question is, how in the world do you ever do this, right? How in the world do you ever trade the shackles of what I call consumeristic, individualistic, entertainment-based hearts and minds for a calling to carry a cross? Why would you do that? Why would any of us want to make that trade? How in the world uh, do we ever invite anybody else to come do that with us, right? When you think about that. Uh, how in the world, uh, when, you, when you think about this calling, how in the world would you even get on that journey and endure, stick and stay, 
be who you say you are, do what you say you're going to do as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, how we would do that until the very end, in light of and in the face of all the other competition out there, right? Namely, our sinful desire to not pick up that cross. When you think about this kind of a journey, you think about words like rejection and betrayal and mocking and hate and loneliness and suffering, right? The opposite of all that is you've got this temptation to a so-called easier life of consumer living, where you just consume products. So the question, the root question is, how do you ever pick up your cross? Invite others to join in the journey as you follow Jesus as he carries that cross, and in the midst of that, endure until the end. Three things I see in the text that I think would help us answer the question is this. First, if you're going to endure it to the very end, you've got to remember that God is not limited. Right? That's simple, right? That, that kind of a principle, it's like, yeah, duh. Yeah, there, there's no limit on God. And yet it's just simple things that we need to be reminded of oftentimes that keep us in the journey, right? God is not limited. I think this is exactly what the Apostle Paul reminds Timothy of in verses uh, 8 and 9 when he says this. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But we all know Paul wasn't a criminal. He was in chains because of his preaching of the gospel. Last thing he says in verse 9 is, but the word of God is not bound. Paul does so good at building the image of here I am in chains, but the word of God, there's no chains on this thing, right? It's not bound. It's not limited. So he's saying God is not limited. So even though the Apostle Paul is limited by the suffering and by his captivity and by his chains, he knows that God himself is not limited. He knows that Jesus has risen. He left the tomb empty, right? He beat Satan's sin and death. Paul knows this. He knows that the gospel itself, the message of the gospel, that it has no limitations. It is the power of God unto salvation. The salvation of the worst, Paul would say, myself. Every believer who follows suit with the Apostle Paul would say the same thing. Paul knows that the, the Word of God itself is not limited either. Why? Because the Word of God is not bound by any earthly circumstance or barrier. There are absolutely zero limitations on God. There are zero limitations on the work of Christ. There's zero limitations on the message of the Gospel. Zero limitations on the power of the Bible. To which... I think most, if not all of us, would say, amen. But what happens in our lives is that we oftentimes begin to falsely think that our limitations restrict God's ability to do something miraculous in us and through us. Don't you think? Now, we, we place false limitations on what God can do in and through us when we begin to look at or focus on our, our limited funds in the bank, right? Or uh, we, we begin to 
uh, think that, that God can't do as much. He is somehow limited because our abilities aren't that great or, or maybe because our time is short or because of some sin that we're wrestling through. Somehow that limits God. And I think oftentimes many people will, will wind up tapping out of this cross-carrying life because they've focused on some kind of false limitation. <coughs> I think the reality, too, is that those who actually endure until the very end, like the Apostle Paul in this passage, others throughout Scripture, many of you in this room, I think those who endure until the very end, those who pick up their crosses, those, those who continuously invite others into the same journey, those kinds of people are the kinds of people who remember that God has no limitations. And then in light of that truth, they begin to live in the light of that truth. They make adjustments to their lives. And they do that by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives and dwells inside of them. The power of the Holy Spirit, this is God coming and living inside of a human being, right? And the Holy Spirit is absolutely capable transforming, sustaining us until the very end. I mentioned this last week. Uh, read about this again in prayer meeting this morning before we walked in here. Draw attention to it again. When you remember the disciples in the scriptures, prior to Jesus' crucifixion, there were a bunch of pansies. Like a bunch of pansies, cowards. They sold Jesus out. And then they bailed as he got crucified. And then he comes back from the dead, and they're like, whoa. They have this conversation, and begin to act, and they're like, you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel today? You're going to like take in all the bad guys? And Jesus is like, yo, that's for me to know the times when all that stuff's going to happen. You just need to go back to Jerusalem and pray for a while until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you. So they do that, right? And those pansies, those cowards, those dudes who bailed and ran and turned tail, those guys became the guys who planted all the churches throughout the book of Acts all the way up until today, right? Every church that's ever existed is just an outflow of those churches. You want to know how those guys died? They all died horribly, right? They died horrifically. They went from cowards to courageous unto death. Because the Holy Spirit was living inside of them. The unlimited dynamite power. The word for power in the book of Acts is dynamis. And that means dynamite or dynamic. God's not limited. Plain and simple, right? Second thing I notice is that we need to remember, if we're going to endure it to the very end, we've got to remember that uh, God has a purpose for our lives. Once again, very simple, right? Pretty easy principle. It's not something you've never heard. God has a purpose for our lives. I've noticed in my own life, I'm sure you probably noticed it in yours, that when, when for me, when I lose sight of God's main purpose for my life, what happens? What happens in your life? When you lose sight of God's main purpose for your life, what happens? I, I wind up getting off track, right? I get off track, I get distracted, I get frustrated, I, I'm ready to give up. Because I've lost sight of God's main purpose for my life. And I've observed the same thing happening in the lives of 
Many people that I've known that start the journey, right? You go back to the story that Jesus tells of the, of the dude who's tossing out seeds. Seed grows up, little plant, wind and rain comes along, fire comes along, birds come along, whatever it is that comes along, and they all die, right? And it's a picture of the heart, the soil in the heart. And this happens. People will start this journey of following Jesus, wind up finding out that it's really hard work. It's, it's far more than just the consumeristic mentality that the American church has set it up to be. Once they find out, you've got to start carrying a cross, got to invite others to do the same thing. This is tough stuff. Pretty soon they fall away, right? And typically they'll fall away into some really weird new purpose for their life, right? And the first one that always happens is this. We're going to bash the church, bash her leaders. That's, it always starts there. Bash the church, bash our leaders, they ain't doing what we want them to do, so on and so forth. And some, like, run off and start figuring out every new conspiracy theory on the face of the dark web, right? And it's just, like, gone. It's like, yo, bro, it takes more faith to believe that than it does this. <sighs> Don't hear me wrong. I'm not against conspiracy theories. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I just get distracted uh, by, like, going and building the, the great American version of a family. What is it? Um, is it 1.5 kids or 2.5 kids? It's always shocked me. I don't know why the stat says that. Two-skull garage, two-story house, a um, bunch of vacation time. White picket fence. White picket fence. You've got to have that. Um, you know, for me, it's a garage full of motorcycles. So that's part of it. <laughs> My brain's gone. Give me a second. <laughs> 2.5 kids. Well, what's up with that? <laughs> Who's got a half? Who has a half a kid? My mom probably would have said, you're the half a kid. <laughs> but we get distracted by building that great American dream of the family, right? It's not bad. Don't hear me wrong. None of these things are bad. It becomes bad when it becomes the ultimate thing, when it becomes the only thing, when it becomes the main thing. When it becomes the main thing, you're off kilter. Um... I think when I look at the Apostle Paul here, um, I, I think in the Apostle Paul's journey, he's, he has not only experienced the personal temptation to tap out, find a new purpose for living, especially in, in the face of extreme suffering for the sake of the gospel, right? Dude's, dude's in a pit, okay? He's chained up. Lonely. He's only got Luke with him. He's the only person with him. He only has one friend. That's a tough place to be. So I think Paul's definitely faced the temptation of like, dude, I'm just going to tap out. Like, get me out of here so I can go sleep in a real bed and eat a steak. I'm sure he's faced that temptation. But not only that, he's also uh, experienced um, the pain of rejection, betrayal, and loss. As he watched helplessly, as many of the people that he once called brother or sister in Christ actually traded their crosses in for a different purpose in life. He's already named some of those people. Verses, verse 15 of chapter 1, and he's going to do it again in chapter 4. He's basically saying, these guys are scoundrels. I don't have anything to do with them, right? So I think Paul's experienced this, this temptation towards finding a different purpose for his life. 
And so what he does here is he reminds young Timothy to endure until the very end by doing what? Remembering that God actually has a specific main purpose for our lives. Look at verse 10. He says, therefore, I endure. There's that word, right? That's why we're talking about enduring. It says, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that word. We could. I could spend all day. God chooses, therefore we can choose. I'll leave it at that. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. What's Paul saying here? What's he saying? When the Apostle Paul says these words, I think he's essentially saying that Timothy's purpose will fuel his endurance. Let me say that again. Timothy's purpose will be the fuel for his endurance. Oftentimes, our purpose, our goal at the end, our bullseye is way too minute because we fashioned a God that we serve who is much smaller than he really is. But in this case, the Apostle Paul has in mind for Timothy and himself, and I believe for all believers, that we would have a gigantic picture for the purpose that God calls us to. And that purpose will then fuel our endurance. He's telling Timothy, he's saying, hey, your purpose is the salvation of the elect, those that God has called to himself, right? Uh, your, your purpose is, is rooted in eternal glory. It's not rooted in temporary happiness that this world offers. How destructive. How destructive has the pursuit of temporary happiness been on the lives of people? Very destructive, right? Those who once called Jesus Savior bailed out the moment they realized that he aims to be their captain, as Charles Spurgeon would say. I'll tell you, I, over the years, I mean, it's been 10 years for me in this pulpit, Started in my living room, right? With six of us. <clears throat> I, I think I have come to a place where I would rather spend my life seeking to save the lost, making disciples within a yard of hell with maybe four or five battle-ready soldiers, as Spurgeon would say it, who actually understand God's purpose for their lives. I would rather do that then sit in the comfort of consuming one entertaining experience after another with hundreds of what I would call soft, self-serving wanderers with no purpose beyond the momentary pleasures of this world. It ties in with our mission statement. When you say there's some people who want to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell in absolute comfort, but what I want to do is run a rescue mission within a yard of hell, you're making a statement. I will say this, <laughs> this is why I'm so grateful as I look around this room and I see faces, people that I've known for a long time, people we've walked with, we've ran hard together, we found ourselves in those places, <laughs> dangerous places, scary places, places where like you have to depend on God to get you through the next moment. I wouldn't want it any other way. It doesn't pay the bills well. <laughs> Thankfully, I guess we trust the Lord for that, right? Because he has no limitations. 
I'm grateful for many of you in this room. Those of you that have picked up your crosses, those of you who are inviting others to join us in the journey, those of you who have laid hold of God's main purpose for your life, you would stand alongside me and others in this room and you would say, my purpose is to see the lost find eternal salvation in Jesus. And you do this in many different ways. You do this as you labor day in and day out in your vocations, as you try to share God's word with others, as you drive trucks down the road, right? As you work in fast food restaurants, as you do construction, even as you farm, I know. I mean, the list could go on and on and on. Many of you have found that that is your main purpose for your life, and you're leading your families that way, and you are sacrificing your time and your talent and your treasure. And you're not getting caught up with some of the craziness that some churches get caught up in, like, she took my seat. Or, I'm sad because I didn't get to choose the color of the carpet. You haven't gotten caught up in the petty stuff that often splits churches wide open, and I am thankful for you. I am grateful to be on that mission with you. God has a main purpose for your life. If you're here and you're like, man, this is new for me. <laughs> Never been here before. Been here for a few times. We'd love to have you join us. Third thing I notice you're going to endure it to the very end, you've got to remember that God is absolutely faithful. Once again, all three points of this message, like, it feels like base-level Christianity, right? But you know what I think oftentimes happens, even in my preaching, I think you, you start thinking, man, we said that a thousand times, but isn't it the fundamentals, right? Like, if you go back to the football analogy, the issue with our football team is fundamentals, isn't it? <laughs> I think, I don't know, maybe it's just because they're called Huskers. I don't know. I it's depressing, right? <laughs> it's the fundamentals, the basics. You go back to the basics of things. God is faithful. And that's the entire essence of Paul's words in the last three verses of our text, right? Look at what he says. He says, the saying is trustworthy. What's the word trustworthy mean? Faithful. Like, faithfulness is all over these last three verses. The saying is trustworthy, faithful. For if we have died with him, died with who? Died with Christ. We will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, I love this one. If we are faithless, you expect him to say something really, he says something like this. He goes, he remains faithful. It's kind of a shocker at the very end. It's like, oh, whoa, I wasn't ready for that. If we are faithless, he'll annihilate you to hell. Well, I mean, there's, there's a possibility of that, right? If you deny him. But no, what he says here is he says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? For he cannot deny himself. And Paul says God is faithful. He, he is faithful to grant eternal life to those who have trusted in Jesus' work at the cross. That's what he's saying. He's faithful to help us endure. Why? So that we might reign with him in eternity. The problem, again, you go back to that picture of the, the goal at the end. <laughs> We little kings of this earth love to set up our little empires. And they're so small. And we're so small-minded. I would rather reign in eternity than have a kingdom here on this earth. And yet at the same time, the tension there is, part of our responsibility as believers is to usher God's kingdom to, into, into this earth, right? And the local church is the way that that gets seen and happens. 
God is faithful. And he's faithful to us when our faith fails. That's that last part. He's faithful to us when our faith fails. Why? Because his faithfulness is not dependent upon us. If God's faithfulness was dependent upon me, God would not be God. His faithfulness is absolutely dependent upon his own perfect, untainted, unbroken character. That's why he's trustworthy. That's why you can trust his promises. See, when I experience, anybody here ever experienced those seasons of despair? Brokenness, loneliness, depression, coldness even towards God? Lord, if you think that I don't experience coldness towards God sometimes, you have a wrong view of a pastor, right? I'm human. Some people hate that saying, but (laughs) there's there's something really um, good and natural and right about the fact that we are human. When this happens to me, it's usually because of my own faithfulness. Sometimes I experience those seasons because of somebody else's unfaithfulness, right? I'm ticked off, upset because that person didn't do what they said they were going to do. Or they did something I never thought they were going to do. You know, it failed expectations type things. Sometimes I experience those seasons because, because of that. But oftentimes it's more because of my own faithlessness. My own failings. I thought I had that beat. Right? Any, anybody experience that? Like, man, why am I there again? The thing that's really good to know is that God has never failed me. He's never failed you. We may have questions about why he allowed some circumstances in our lives, and that definitely grant, and we may not have those answers until we get to heaven, right? And yet we know that God has a purpose. I don't know what his purpose is always, and sometimes that hurts in the midst of painful seasons. And even in the darkest of times, that I've experienced, when, when I couldn't see the purpose for my suffering, when, when I couldn't fathom even enduring another day. Have you ever been there? You're like, this is it. I'm done. Even in those moments, God has been so faithful to be present with me in the midst of my suffering. Wouldn't always notice it right then, but at times, days later, weeks later, months later, because of the word of a friend or because of some time in quiet with my journal open or my Bible open or songs blasting beyond the normal levels in my truck, which irritates my neighbors along with the sound of my motorcycles. Yes, it's true. God has been so faithful, though, in the midst of my suffering to to show up and to remind me that his promises of salvation in the bloody cross his promise of victory over Satan's sin and death because of the empty tomb His promise of a future hope that I have in heaven. That those promises are rock solid. And that they're absolutely trustworthy promises. Not because I did anything right or did anything wrong. But simply because the God who promises is the God who is absolutely faithful. And I can stand on that when I don't know what's going on. And I don't want to walk forward anymore. Isn't that good? In conclusion, we walk through these questions again, just so that there's kind of a freshness. How in the world, how in the world do you ever trade the shackles of these ideas of consumeristic, individualistic? You know, consumeristic is, I'm just here to consume an experience, right? And individualistic is, I'm just my own man. It's just me and Jesus, right? Like, I don't know who you are, but 
which is so crazy because the Bible doesn't even speak of that. The whole idea of personal autonomy and I'm going to follow Jesus and make my own personal decision, you know that started like in the early 1900s. It's not, it didn't happen in the Bible. It didn't start there, so to speak. And yet at the same time, there is truth that you and I do have a personal decision to make. Individualism, entertainment-based hearts. Why, why would we ever trade all of that stuff to carry a cross? And why in the world would anyone want to join us in that kind of journey? How in the world would we ever endure that journey faithfully until the end, despite the rejection, despite the betrayal, despite the mocking, despite the fear, the hate, the loneliness, the suffering, the temptation, so-called easier life? Why would you ever trade that? Why would you ever pick up a cross, follow Jesus carrying his cross, inviting others to join in the journey, and then keep doing that until the very end? Why would you do it? I think God's spoken in his word here. And I think the answer to that question is this. We endure until the very end by remembering that God is not limited by remembering that God has a purpose for our lives, by remembering that God is absolutely faithful. And the final thing I want to say is, it's the cross, it's the empty tomb, it's the hope of heaven that proves all of this true. Without the cross, without the empty tomb, without the hope of heaven, you know what this is? This is a social club. And I've got plenty of other social clubs I like to be a part of. So I'm not here to build a social club. It's not. The cross, the empty tomb, the promise of eternity in heaven, that's all I need to prove that my limitations do not limit the power of God. The cross, the empty tomb, the promise of eternity in heaven, that's all I need to prove that God himself has a massive purpose for my life that far surpasses any temporary pleasure that I could chase this side of heaven. And lastly, the cross, the empty tomb, the promise of eternity in heaven is all I need to prove that even in my darkest bouts of unfaithfulness and rebellion, that I have, you have, if you trusted in Jesus, an eternally patient and kind and loving, gracious, merciful Father who is absolutely trustworthy. Why? Because his faithfulness is absolutely limitless. Got it? Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. As we close, I pray, God, that you would come and speak to our hearts, quiet recesses of our hearts. However, we each walked in today. Pray, God, that you would minister by the power of your spirit in these moments. God, we love you. Thank you for these reminders this morning. Help us to endure until the very end. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.